Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have the audio-only portion of today's synchronous Zoom class on estimating energy expenditure. So recall that this is the one where we go over the many different equations that are available for estimating the number of calories a body needs to maintain health. And remember that the biggest takeaways were really that you need to consider your patient population, um, your particular patient, your goals for that patient, your patient's goals, and that may change which equation is the correct one to use in that instance. Also, at the end of this call, we talked about, I I talked through an example um, spreadsheet for creating a spreadsheet that will do the heavy lifting of the math for you when it comes to calculating energy needs. And as much as I love spreadsheets and geek out over spreadsheets, and I really do, the audio only of me narrating putting together a spreadsheet was pretty boring to listen to. So I chopped that off of the end of the recording. It is still on there on the video recording if you'd like to watch that on Carmen. And I will post additional resources for where to find, if I've piqued your interest with spreadsheets and you'd like to learn more about how to um, program a spreadsheet, um, those resources are gonna be posted on Carmen as well. Um, Shout out to the Columbus Public Library, which provides access to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A, hashtag not sponsored, um, because that is a great place to go to watch how-to videos on just about anything, including um, programming an Excel spreadsheet. So um, look for more information on Carmen, and as always, send me any questions. With any luck, you were able to listen to the content recorded by Kristen Heitman on Monday on measuring energy expenditure. That was some good stuff, Um, and I'm going to refer to it today. So if that's confusing, just know that there is content recorded by Kristen as part of her guest lecture this week. Kristen's a PhD student here in HRS, and as part of her program, she needed to put together a teaching practicum, um, but she's also working full-time. So it worked out really well for her to create that content this summer and then add it to our class so you could listen to it. And then it just worked out beautifully that it fit in this week. So while Peter and I were in lab um, running around getting everything ready for the kits, um, you guys could listen to the content, watch and listen to the content that Kristen had put together. So if you haven't watched that, be sure that you do, particularly because I'm going to build off of it today. So Monday was all about measuring energy expenditure. How do we measure how many calories the body needs. And again, that was direct calorimetry, indirect calorimetry, doubly labeled water, and bicarbonate urea method, all of which are fascinating. Um, And all of which are fairly expensive. Of those, indirect calorimetry is the one you are most likely to see in practice, particularly in a critical care setting. Um, But you're not typically going to see that. um, No one's gonna go out and buy an indirect calorimetry for private practice, right? Those things cost more than my car or any car that I'll ever own. Um, so what we're talking about today is estimating energy expenditure, using prediction equations to estimate energy needs. And before I get into that, let me remember a couple announcements. Um, a lot of folks have been concerned about getting the lab kits, having the lab kits, getting everything turned in on time. Please don't stress about due dates for the ABCDE project. We have them split out over the course of the semester just to make it easier to turn in Um, But I made those due dates so I can change them and I will. So if you don't have your kit and you weren't able to collect something, 
I know that because we're keeping track of who gets their kits, right? So if you don't have your kit and you can't collect the data, that's fine. Also bananas, let's not forget bananas, everyone. Um, so we will adjust due dates as needed. And again, I think I said this, I tried to say this every time I met with somebody yesterday. Um, you don't need to worry about remembering everything we talked about, or for those of you coming today, everything we will talk about when you come to lab to pick up your kit, because we are going to review everything. There'll be more videos, more context, more things posted. So hopefully those of you who got your kits, you're not feeling totally overwhelmed with everything we just sent you. Um, and those of you coming today, we, we did pretty consistently start running behind. Um, we're not quite a well-oiled machine. Peter and I, I think we know what we're doing now um, for the most part. Uh, <laughs> but there's that, very, there's that human variable of, did you actually drink enough liquid before you came? And darn it, if it didn't get cold, the one day I need you all to come in with warm hands so that we can do a finger stick blood draw. And it was cold yesterday. So just a couple of very human factors um, put us behind. So thank you all. You were all wonderfully patient yesterday. Um, and just a heads up to those of you coming today, we will probably get behind again. Um, but there is a classroom across the hall where you can sit um, and pretend you're in class for 10 minutes while you wait for us to, to, to get to you. Um, the one piece of the kit that we need back from you is the glucometer. And several very astute people said, how are we going to return the glucometers? We'll let you know when we figure that out. Um, we haven't gotten that far yet. We're getting through this week first, and then we'll worry about that another time. Um, so we, we will figure that out and let you know, but we don't, we don't know that yet, precisely. Questions, comments, concerns, anything about Monday's content on measuring energy expenditure? Anything you're still confused on and want to know more about? I will watch the chat for the next 15 seconds and then launch into the content for today. It was very exciting to see all of your eyes yesterday, those of you who came in. That was a lot of fun. All right, we will go into estimating energy requirements. So um, we're gonna reiterate this several times. Measuring energy needs would be our preferred way of doing it, no matter what. We would prefer to measure how many calories the body needs, um, but it's just not realistic in most settings. So we have predictive equations for estimating how many calories a person needs. So your estimated energy requirement is the energy intake that is predicted to maintain energy, um, energy balance rather, in a healthy person of a defined age, gender, weight, height, and level of physical activity consistent with good health, or in other words, enough calories to do what you got to do. Um, so for those who are in an anabolic state, so kids who are growing or women who are pregnant and or lactating, they would need additional calories to support those things. Um, if someone is stressed or injured or ill, then they're gonna need additional calories to address that. So your estimated energy requirement is enough calories to do what you gotta do or to get you healthy or to keep you healthy, whatever it takes in that case. When it comes to um, the, so there's, there's a lot of acronyms. We have REE and EER. EER is estimated energy requirement. REE is resting energy expenditure, not to confuse you. Um, so for a pediatric population, again, we wanna make sure that we are maintaining health while supporting growth and development. To that end, most of the predictive equations for peds actually build in the additional calories needed for growth, right? So you'll see as we go through, the adult equations are typically like, this is how many calories you need to maintain weight, 
and then you need to work above or below if someone's goal is to gain weight or to lose weight. Pediatric equations are pretty much, this is how many calories the body needs to grow um, at a healthy rate. So you, for the most part, pediatric equations, you don't need to add additional calories. For pregnant and lactating women, um, the goal with those is to maintain health while supporting maternal fetal development and or lactation. You can be pregnant and lactating at the same time. Been there, done that. Really important to note though, with pregnancy, you'll hear this phrase, eating for two. Let's be very clear about who that second one is. The second person that you are supporting while pregnant is not a fourth grader. They're very, very, very small. So the energy needs in the first trimester are no higher than they would be in a non-pregnant individual. So you don't need any additional calories in the first trimester of pregnancy, which is good because there's reasonable odds you will feel terrible and not want to eat anyway. Um, and then in the second trimester, the additional needs are 340 calories per day. And in the third trimester, 452 calories per day which again is not eating for two in the sense that you will see people interpret it at some point, right? Like 340 calories is a bowl of cereal with milk. It's not a, a ton of extra food. Um, and so you will either see people, you'll, you'll hear people say you're eating for two, or perhaps you'll be encouraged, oh, you should have more, you're eating for two. And feel free to say, no, thank you. Um, that's, not, that's not what I need. Uh, or I would like to point out the third trimester, it's actually, can be very challenging to eat additional calories because you have a human compressing all of your internal organs and it's difficult to fit any more food into your stomach. Um, so eating for two while pregnant, that's, that's not the best part. The best part is once the baby is out and you're lactating and then you get to eat an additional 500 calories a day and there's no longer anything compressing your stomach. That is far superior. And Madison, you say, how do they come up with those exact KCALs for second and third trimester? I don't know how they came up with those exact KCALs. They would have used predictive equations and estimates from direct or indirect calorimetry. And what's important to, to your point is if you find yourself pregnant or counseling someone who is pregnant, don't worry about getting to exactly those calorie levels, right? What you're going to do in reality is encourage them to get about 300 additional calories a day or about 450 additional calories a day and then monitor weight gain over time. So it's going to be, um, gosh, I had all of this memorized to the nth detail while pregnant and now I can't think. But the weight gain, you really don't need to gain any weight in the first trimester. And then depending on um, the person's weight status prior to getting pregnant, there are different ranges of recommendations. We'll come back to this. I have it written down. It's in, it's in Peds week. That's why I can't think of it. Um, but there are different recommendations for how much weight you gain based on your weight prior to pregnancy. And then that splits out into how much weight you gain per week. Um, so it's really more a matter of eating when you're hungry, choosing healthy foods, and then just watching your weight gain. We have a question. Yep. Is it common for someone who is pregnant to meet with a dietitian or is it only under certain circumstances? I'm going to go with, it depends on your health insurance. How's that for a terrible answer? Um, when I was pregnant with my, my son, my first, my first child, when I met with the nurse practitioner for the first time, she asked me what I do for a living. And I said, I'm a dietitian. And then she literally got in my face, like in my face, telling me that I need to make sure that I get enough calcium and iron. And these are food sources of calcium. And I was like, I, did you, I said, I'm a, okay. Okay. 
Um, so for someone who's pregnant, if that person is pregnant with multiples, yes, they should meet with a dietitian. If that person has a pre-existing condition or another condition that complicates pregnancy in some way, yes, they should meet with a dietitian. Um, but whether or not you meet with a dietitian just standardly is going to depend on the circumstances and the health insurance. We'll also talk about the women, infants, and children program in a few weeks, the WIC program. Um, and so with WIC, yes, you would absolutely meet with a dietitian on a regular basis. So um, it depends is the incredibly infuriating answer you're going to hear from me over and over and over again. Um, and I do have a note here in the notes section, additional calories listed here. These are for if you have a singleton pregnancy, if you have multiples, if you're expecting twins or triplets, that changes things. That's a different story in terms of additional calories per day. I think it depends on the clinic where you, if you work in a clinic, I saw quite a few of my patients were referred to me for gestational diabetes or um, rapid weight gain. Yes, so, thank you. So I saw a lot or insufficient weight gain where they just were not gaining weight. I had one patient who all she wanted to drink, she wouldn't, she didn't want vegetables because they weren't her thing and she just wanted to drink uh, soda and she was way underweight. So it depends, I, I, in, my, in my position, I saw it because of where I worked. I saw a lot of women, uh, pregnant women because of that. And you bring up a good point. Definitely someone with gestational diabetes, we'd want them to see a dietitian. So, and that comes up in week 20 of pregnancy when you get to do the oral glucose tolerance test, which is also delightful. Okay, so this is a bit of a recap from Monday, but when we're looking at energy expenditure, um, it is the sum of resting energy expenditure thermic effective exercise, which this again is our most variable piece, right? And thermic effective food. We don't worry about thermic effective food so much because it's not really something you can manipulate. I promise you cannot eat celery and lose weight. That's, I mean, if you only eat celery, yes, you lose weight, but that's not a diet plan. There's no food you can eat. Just the internet, just saying the internet. This is the piece over here, exercise. This is the piece you can control and that you can cause the greatest variability in your total energy needs. And we have here that it's about 15 to 20% of the person's total calories. I always pick on Michael Phelps. I got to pick a new swimmer because he's, he's retired for real now, right? Um, but if you were Michael Phelps, this would be larger than 20%. If you're an Olympic swimmer training at an elite level, um, this is going to be greater than 20% of your total calories. But resting energy energy expenditure is that biggest piece of our total calorie needs. So knowing this, we have equations for estimating energy expenditure. And you've seen a couple of these. Those of you who started on the mini case have seen a couple of these already. Um, Mifflin, these are, these are what I would call the big names in prediction equations. Um, so we have Mifflin St. George, Harris Benedict, Penn State, Ireton Jones, KCAL per kilogram, and honestly, there are over 200 published prediction equations for estimating how many calories a body needs. So quick note, I will never ask you to memorize the equations. I will always provide you the equations. If you end up working in a clinical setting where you use Mifflin St. Dior every day, you're going to memorize it and that's great. Um, but I don't know what setting you'll end up in. And for the purposes of this class, it's not a good use of your brain cells to memorize all of these equations with the exception of kcals per kilogram. I am going to ask you to memorize that one. And I have a slide on that coming up just to highlight that's the one thing I want you to memorize. But there are a lot of equations for this. So I want to walk you through sort of 
take you all the way back to when I was a student, what I learned, and then speed up to today. So with estimating energy expenditure, here's what I thought I knew. <laughs> Predictive equations provide an estimate for resting energy expenditure, but we have to account for activity. So, okay, great. Predictive equations get me this piece of the pie. Um, they get me the resting energy expenditure because they're based on direct calorimetry measures and indirect calorimetry measures that have been done over time. So it gets us the resting energy expenditure, but we need to account for exercise and activity. So, so if we have to account for activity, then we need to multiply the result of the predictive equations by an activity factor, by an estimate of how active that person is to get their total energy expenditure. Great, I got it, I can do this. This is literally word for word what I learned when I was a student 15 years ago. So there is a textbook that I've, I've mentioned to a few of you. I did not make you buy this book um, because for several reasons, because it's money. And also they have a picture in here. Let me just show you. This is a picture of a computer screen to show you a website that is no longer available. Okay, they, they used a camera to take a picture of a computer. Like if only there were another way to get a shot of the screen to tell you, mm, I can't, I can't. But it's, it is a good reference, so I've got it. And actually you're gonna see pages from it posted on Carmen because it does have some good information. Um, but anyway, this book that you did not buy says um, prediction equa the equations predict resting energy, resting energy expenditure in kilocalories to arrive at estimates of total energy expenditure, you have to multiply by one of the activity factors. Great, got it. Use an additional activity factor, use an additional factor to account for um, increased metabolism caused by disease, injury, or surgery. So what I learned, this is exactly what I learned, right? You get your REE number, you multiply by the activity factor, and then if you need to multiply by a stress, illness, or injury factor, you do that as well. Got it, perfect, that's exactly what I learned. This is published in 2018, perfect, nothing's changed. Your textbook says, resting energy expenditure, this one came out in 2019, right? This is a very good book. We know the people who wrote this book. This is a very good book. Textbook says, after resting energy expenditure has been determined, energy use and activity must also be estimated in order to estimate total energy requirements. Good, still good. Okay, we're gonna use those activity factors. Wait, no. Previously, activity and stress factors have been used to account for the metabolic stress of certain disease states, and these have not been validated and are not recommended for practice. So here's me putting my slides together in 2018 because I thought I knew what I was doing. And then I had one book telling me, yep, you're right, keep using the activity factors. And another book telling me, nope, you're wrong. We used to do that, but we don't do that anymore. So, okay, now what do I do? Um, I lay on the floor and stare, stare off into space, just like Grumpy Cat here. Um, no, <laughs> I go to figure out um, what is the current best practice? What's the best answer I can give you guys? So this is gonna get into several big concepts, but basically um, one of the big concepts I want you to get from this class overall is that you always need to be learning and always know where to look for the latest information um, and that things do change. And it depends, right? So it, de it depends, it's gonna become a refrain in this, in this um, lecture here. So where did I go to find the answer? I have two different books telling me two different things. What's the answer? 
Well, there's a group um, called the American Society for Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. Um, this is the group of pharmacists, dietitians, physicians who support critically ill patients with either being fed directly into their stomach, enteral nutrition, or their gut, their stomach or their gut, um, or um, parental nutrition being fed through their veins. So what does Aspen say? Aspen's, Aspen knows what they're doing. What would they tell me to do? So Aspen's guidelines are, we suggest that indirect calorimetry be used to determine energy requirements. Great, I agree. When available and in the absence of variables that affect the accuracy of the measurement. Okay, so when available. Yes, in an, in an ICU setting, you might have indirect calorimetry available. The respiratory therapist would be the one to run it, not you, because you have a mechanically ventilated patient. You're not touching that patient. That's the RT's job. Um, and in the absence of variables that affect the accuracy of the measurement, would you like me to pull back up the slides from Monday? Um, there are a lot of variables that affect the accuracy of the measurement for indirect calorimetry, and someone who is critically ill probably has some of those. Chelsea, yes, to your point, yes, this is going to be only for critically ill patients. This is that it depends piece of all of my answers. So, um, so okay, so Aspen says use IC. Great, I would love to. But very often, patients who are critically ill, if they're already being fed parentally or interally, they're getting a continuous feed of calories. And the recommendation for an accurate measure of indirect calorimetry says you have to be fasted. And if you're being continuously fed, you are definitely not fasted. So that's a variable that would affect the accuracy of an indirect calorimetry measurement. So yeah, IC would be great, but it's gonna be hard to get an accurate measurement in most settings if the patient's already critically ill. So they write, in the absence of indirect calorimetry, we suggest that a published predictive equation or a simplistic weight-based equation, 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram per day, be used to determine energy requirements. So go ahead and memorize, and I have another slide on this coming up, but memorize that 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram per day. That's a really good, very useful touch point of this is how many calories I think my patient's going to need, and you can work from there. Um, what you're going to find when you get into practice is that you'll be working with preceptors who have learned different things or went through school the same time I did or a different time than I did, and they still use activity and stress factors. Um, and it's going to depend on your patient population. So yes, to Jackie and Chelsea's point, both of you, this is, these are the guidelines for just critically ill patients, but you will see 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram used in a variety of populations. So in terms of, this is, this is the big thing with today's lecture. You all want to know what the right answer is. You're going to ask me, which equation do I use? What is the right answer? And I want to tell you but there isn't one right answer. It's gonna depend. It depends on your patient. It depends on your goals for that patient. It depends on their weight status. It depends on other health and activity factors. There's not gonna be one answer, one equation I can give you. There's over 200 published equations for this, right? That's how we got 200 published equations because everybody looking at this said, well, that's not quite how I would do it. I'm gonna do it differently. So yes, these are your Aspen guidelines. They would say use indirect calorimetry, in the absence of that, use 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram per day. This is assuming your patient is not morbidly obese. That's a different story. Um, and you can use 25 to 30 for a healthy individual as well, just as a reference point of, of total calories. So those are the Aspen guidelines, but I, I wanted more information. 
So I went to the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. We have an evidence analysis library, um, which is the most up-to-date um, reviewed by experts. This is all the information that we have on a topic. And so the evidence analysis library says, if indirect calorimetry is available, you should use a measured resting metabolic rate to determine energy needs in overweight or obese adults. Yes, I agree. We should do that. Um, and we have one at, in Dodd Hall, and I know they have them in the main hospital. Um, but again, that's not typically what you're going to have in a private practice setting or for that matter in, in most other settings. Um, but if indirect calorimetry is not available, now we have the dietitian should use the Mifflin-St. Jor equation using actual weight to estimate resting metabolic rate in overweight or obese adults. And then multiply by one of the following activity factors to estimate total energy needs. So we're back to using activity factors. Um, so who's right? Well, Aspen is right, but they were specifically talking about critically ill patients and they did not address the weight status. If you have a critically ill, morbidly obese patient, 30 kcals per kilogram is probably going to provide far too many calories. And we have the academy recommendations, which say use indirect calorimetry. So really we're all on the same page. We want to use indirect calorimetry, but it's typically not gonna be available. Um, so if it's not available, then you should use the Mifflin-St. Jor equation using actual weight. So even if you're morbidly obese, we should use actual weight. But these are the recommendations looking at treatment of overweight and obesity in adults. So these are the weight management guidelines. So this is saying you are actively trying to help a person lose weight. So what is the correct answer? Well, the correct answer is indirect, indirect calorimetry. And I got to tell you, the company that um, makes those calorimeters would love to sell them all to all of you. Um, but that's typically not going to be available. So you're going to have to use a predictive equation. And it's going to depend on your setting, which equation you should use, whether you use stress or activity factors. Um, if I ask you to calculate something on a mini case or an exam, I will tell you which equation I want you to use and I will provide the equation. Okay. Questions so far. If you're confused at this point, that's normal. I just want to throw that out there. I have a quick question. Yeah. What, I mean, obviously in some instances, it's going to be easier to tell than other, but like what constitutes a critically ill patient versus... Like, is this something we use for someone that just like has pneumonia or something or what constitutes? Oh, what a great question. I mean, someone who has pneumonia could both be at home um, recuperating on their own or they could be critically ill and in a, in a um, hospital setting. Typically when I hear the phrase critically ill, I think of someone who is um, hospitalized. So they're in the hospital, they're inpatient. They didn't just go for a visit and they're coming back out. They're staying in the hospital. So a critically ill patient would be someone who was on a ventilator. So if you are in the hospital and the machine is helping you breathe, you are critically ill. Um, my dad, when he had cancer, he had to stay in the hospital for his stem cell transplant. He was critically ill. So um, basically anything where you are, you are not leaving today from the hospital, um, with the exception of like, so labor and delivery, right? I got to stay a couple days. I was not critically ill. So it's not across the board. Everyone in the hospital is critically ill. Um, but if you're, you know, a heart failure patient, you are critically ill. If you are in the throes of really nasty chemo for cancer, you are critically ill. Um, if you have pneumonia and you need assistance breathing and you're on a ventilator, you're critically ill. If you've been hit by a truck and you're in the ICU, 
and we're trying to get your body built back up, you're critically ill. Does that, does that help? Yeah, that makes more sense. Thank you. Okay. Kelsey wants to know uh, if, what the, what will the RD exam want us to use? I don't know. It's been a minute since I studied for the RD exam, but I will make a note of that and come back with an answer for you. Um, I, I would say we've got the very last slide, I think says memorize these, right? So it's going to be the Hamwe equation, converting pounds to kilograms and that kcal per kilogram. Those are the three things that I'm going to say, I want you to memorize for this class. Um, Peter, do you remember having to do I, equations from memory? No, you know, some of the basic, you know, there's things you're going to remember, like how to do, you know, ideal body weight. I don't, you know, they give you a calculator, they give you a dry erase board. Um, I, I, you know, it's, it, uh, it, I don't remember them asking me to remember any equations. I don't remember that being an issue. I don't either. I do That's remember. It. So I don't know if you remember when I took it, it was an uh, adaptive equation so that it would get harder the more questions you answered correctly. And I do remember that if you answered all enough questions within a certain domain correctly, you would stop getting those questions. So. I think I think I was just before that time when I took it, it was something like there's going to be five sections and one of them doesn't count, but we won't tell you which one doesn't count because they were testing the questions. It's like, well, that's rude. Right. It, it went, and after a while, I was like, I didn't even use my calculator anymore. You get to a point where, because like, clinical was my favorite. And so I answered those and they were like, no more clinical questions. I'm like, and we can do a separate class about the exam and I can, you know, we're not allowed to tell you exactly what's on it, but I can uh, tell you what my experience was with it. I have a question about the activity level. So how do you, so like, let's say you have like a soccer player compared to like a distance swimmer, distance runner. How do you like, how are you able to like decide between like active, very active? Like, is there certain like sports that go into it or like amount of minutes per week or like, cause that can like, not drastically change, but I mean, that does change a good amount of calories if you're saying that like someone's a 1.4 activity wise, but they really should be like a 1.9. So how do you differentiate that? So there are definitions for these. Um, and I, I have them posted on Carmen, I think. It depends. <laughs> God, you're going to get so sick of me saying that. So for like the dietary reference intake equations, there are defined levels for sedentary, low active, um, very active, but they're things like the amount of energy expended by a 70 kilogram adult walking two, three miles per day at a pace of 10 miles per hour, right? So like it's defined, but very few people then fit that exact definition, right? So to your point, someone who's playing soccer, you're not interested in how much walking they do in the day. You're interested in how many hours they spend running up and down a field, right? So it's going gonna, it's gonna to come down to, there are definitions for these types of things, um, sedentary, low active, active, very active. And what you'll do in practice is actually um, sort of, it'll be your expert clinical judgment, your guesstimate of what is the best one to use for your, your patient or your client in that setting. Um, and I think, Tali, does that also help with your question, which activity factor what is the range for each activity level and how do you know what number to use? Is that helpful to you, Tali, as well? They're, they're somewhat defined, excellent, okay. Um, uh, do we need to remember the units that go into the equations? I will give them to you in this class. I can't speak for all of your other classes, but if I, if I want you to do the math, I will give you the equation and the units. So whether it's pounds or kilograms, inches or centimeters, I will, I will provide that. Again, that's not, 
that's not where I need you to. Once you, if you get into a, a certain area of practice, you're going to memorize it. That's all there is to it. Um, Sierra says, should Mifflin St. Jor be used for morbidly obese patients or would the adjusted KCALs per kilogram, 22 to 25, be more correct? It depends, right? So this slide is showing you that you should use the Mifflin St. Jor with actual weight um, to estimate resting metabolic rate when you're looking at um, helping a patient lose weight. These are the guidelines for treatment of overweight and obesity. So it depends who is your patient and what is your goal for that patient. Um, would the adjusted KCALs per kilogram be more correct? Maybe if you're looking at a patient where you're not trying to help them lose weight, you're just trying to help them recover from critical illness, for example. Um, that's something where you're going to see different things done by dietitians in practice. Um, I can post these articles as well, both the Aspen article and the Academy recommendations. Both of them refer to, and also expert opinion does apply. So you as the expert in this setting, you're going to get to where you know the answer for your patients, which you can then back up. There's always going to be evidence to support that. Um, but you're going to find what works in your population. Peter, would you concur with that? I would. Like there's, it's going to just depend. It's the incredibly infuriating answer. It depends is the answer to your question. Sierra, does that help at all? Okay. Professor Rosnick. Yes. I do have a question that goes along with that. So you just said the, the Mifflin-St-Jor equation was to treat overweight and obesity. Um, what if you have a critically ill overweight and obese patient who the objective is not to lose weight, but say they come in with like a burn injury, so you would actually need like the increased calories? How would you approach that situation? So this is something that um, about this time last year, Dr. Roberts and a couple other faculty and I sat in a, in a room and debated this for like an hour because we want to be able to give you an exact answer. We really want to give you an exact answer. Um, there are different recommendations for that. So if it's morbidly obese, you could use the 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram, but use an ideal body weight for the individual instead of their actual body weight. Um, or you could use um, the Mifflin-St-Jor equation and use actual body weight. Um, and what you're ultimately going to do is beg someone, if it's a critically ill patient, beg someone to come do indirect calorimetry on that patient, right? Because you really, that's going to be your best option. Depending on the setting that you're in, if you're at Ohio State, we have indirect calorimeters that can be hooked up to patients and, and do measures. But if you're in a smaller community hospital or a different setting, then you, you may or may not have it. So the big things that you're going to do are you're going to check on that patient every single day and see how they're, pro how they're progressing. Um, and you will work with an interdisciplinary care team and see, do we need to be adding more protein? Do we need to be adding more calories? Do they have enough fluid? Um, and it's, it's just something where it's, it's not like you walk in the room and say, they need 2000 calories by, right? Like you're going to be there every day checking on that patient. Does that help at all? Yeah, definitely. Thank you. So here are some of those um, additional predictive equations. Again, I'm not asking you to memorize anything other than you could say this American College of Chess Physicians equation, this 25 kcals times kilograms. So here again, you have another recommendation. If their BMI is 16 to 25, use the usual body weight. If BMI is greater than 25, use ideal body weight. 
BMI is less than 16, use existing body weight for the first week and then use ideal body weight, right? We're all over the place. So for the purposes of this class though, I'm gonna tell you what you're doing for the exam. And then you just have to do the math. I have these in here. Um, these are all of the factors that I was taught when I was a student. You may still see these um, in certain places. Um, again, you don't need to memorize these. What's important to really retain from something like this is a sense of which types of injuries are going to cause the greatest increase in someone's metabolic needs, right? So a minor surgery could cause basically no increase in needs, or it could cause a, a slight increase in calorie needs. Whereas a major surgery is, yes, you're healing, you need to re rebuild, that's gonna take some extra calories. Um, skeletal trauma, head trauma, inf a severe infection, those all start to increase your total calorie needs. Burns, I am not advocating burns, but burns, if you have burns over a large percentage of the body surface area, that causes a tremendous metabolic demand. That causes you to need a lot of additional calories to support healing from all of that damage. Activity factors, um, these range, there are different, this is so to note on activity factors, there are different activity factors that you use for different equations. So the DRI, the dietary reference intake equations have their own physical activity coefficients. You use specifically those physical activity coefficients with those equations. Other equations, you don't have a specific activity factor and you could use something like this. Although make note for your ABCDE project, we're gonna have you calculate your own calorie needs using I think four or five of the equations. And then you are gonna look at those numbers and decide as the expert in your own body, um, how many calories do you think you need? And you can use one of these activity factors. For my part, my normal activities of daily living, my ADLs, do not merit me a, an activity factor of 1.5. That would be too many calories for me. I'm, I'm not quite confined to bed. I'm at least out of bed. Um, but my, my ADLs, I'm not a, I'm not a 1.5. I drive everywhere, guys. I don't, I don't walk around campus anymore. Um, so these factors are not specific to any equation and I don't need you to memorize them. But what's important is to get a sense of what types of illness or injury are going to cause um, greater metabolic needs. And Dana, you have where does the minus 161 and plus five come from for females versus males? That's such a big difference. I don't know exactly where they came up with those numbers. I'll go back to that slide so you can see it. So yes, um, men get to add an additional five calories at the end of this equation. Women get to subtract 61, 161 calories at the end of this equation. Um, rude. Uh, the, 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 the easy explanation is that males typically do have larger... Um, percent lean body mass, right? So they have greater muscle mass, which is more metabolically active, which requires more calories to support. Um, although that's not always, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say Serena Williams, right? She's got more muscle mass than the average guy, just saying. Um, so you would use a different equation in that case. But that's where that comes, comes from, is that um, when you look at normative data, for the most part, males do have more muscle mass on average than females, because life isn't fair. Here are some of the pediatric equations. Here again, these are taking into account um, the additional calorie needs for supporting growth and development. Um, good guess, if that was your guess, Dana, you were correct. Um, so I have these here for reference. Again, you do not need to memorize them. 
Here are the DRI equations for overweight and obese children and young adults. And so what's important to note about these equations, you have um, this value times age and years, and then a physical activity coefficient times all of this. And the physical activity coefficients are defined for both males and females and for activity level. And those are all, those descriptions are all published as well. Um, so all of this information would go into account if you're looking at equations for overweight and obese children and young adults. So when you were working with overweight and obese children and young adults, those, that's a population that's still growing. So for the most part, we don't advocate that a child lose weight. We would rather they maintain weight as they gain height, right? So most of the equations are not really targeted at having a child lose weight. Um, again, it depends. Um, but for the most part, we would want to just say, we're going to maintain your weight as you continue to grow. As my mother would tell you, I always grew out before I grew up. I have some not cute pictures, you guys. It's not cute. Protein requirements. <clears throat> so we've gone over calories. We also need to make sure we're providing adequate protein, particularly in the case of metabolic stress, illness, or injury. So the RDA for protein is a simplistic 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight. I forgot to put my memorize icon on there. You should memorize that one too. 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight is worth committing to memory. Um, but there are different protein requirements. Um, if you're working with metabolic stress, trauma, an oncology patient, severe infection, or a surgical patient, then you might need closer to 1 to 1.5 grams per kilogram severe stress, burns, or multiple trauma, you're looking at 1.5 to 2.5 grams per kilogram. Um, and if you're looking at an athlete population, two grams per kilogram is one of the recommendations, um, but that's, that's something that um, you would need to look very specifically at the sport, um, which sport is the person competing in, and also what are their, what are their goals in terms of um, gaining muscle mass or, you know, maintaining weight or maintaining, you know, depending on some, some sports, your the goal is to maintain a low weight, others it's to gain weight. So again, it, it depends. That makes it sound like I know nothing about anything, but it does. It depends on your patient. Other questions on all of that. It's a lot of information thrown at you. I'm not done yet. So you don't, don't quite log off just yet. So I, do, I did throw this slide in here at the end. For this class, I do want you to memorize the Hamley equation, right? So if you need to calculate ideal body weight, you should be able to do that. Do memorize how to convert from pounds to kilograms, right? So 2.2. And do memorize that idea of 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram as a reference range. When it comes to the rest of the equations, I will always provide the equation um, or a reference to the equation. There is a reference to the equation posted on Carmen for the mini case this week for Mifflin St. Jor. Um, and we'll, I will look into that question of which equation does the RD exam want you to have memorized? I don't know the answer to that. I, I'll, I'll see if I can find something to that effect. Those are great questions. Other great questions. For the protein requirements, is that also for children or is it only for adults? That is for adults. Um, I will have to look and see. I can't think off the top of my head what it is for kids. 